Hi, this is Candace Knight for Blackmore's Night, and you're here with John listening to Iron City Rock. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. Episode 95, we're going way out on a limb for you. We had a chance to talk to two artists of two very different musical genres um, that almost have nothing in common and... uh, we actually neither one of these artists will be coming to the Pittsburgh region. Uh, one of them will be coming to the Philadelphia that we're aware of region, and the other one will be coming to Bethlehem, PA. So we will uh, discuss both of those in the interview. So what we're going to do, we're going to start off with an interview with Candace Knight, vocalist of the band Blackmore's Knight. The name may not ring a bell, but uh, one of the members of Blackmore's Knight probably does to most of you. Richie Blackmore, former guitarist of Deep Purple and Rainbow. Um, he and Candace uh, formed this band back in the early 1990s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's been about 10 years or so now. Um, had uh, quite a good collaboration. She's a phenomenal singer, and he obviously is a master of every stringed instrument under the sun. Uh, they do what is kind of a, a renaissance music with a, just a little bit of a tinge of rock in, in mixed in. So really was excited to kind of introduce a lot of you to the band. I don't know that this is the kind of music you're going to hear on any radio format in the Pittsburgh market. So um, I really wanted to give you a chance to hear this uh, album they have out now. It's called Autumn Sky. It just came out in the United States on Spine Farm Records. The album actually went to number one on the uh, New Age charts, surpassing Enya the first week it came out. Um, So the album is receiving very good press nationally and worldwide. Uh, They will be doing a tour of Germany, but they will be doing a tour of the eastern part of the United States. So uh, if something comes up in the Pittsburgh market, we'll be sure to let you know. We're going to lead you off with a track called Highland, which is the lead-off track from the album, again, from Autumn Sky from Blackmore's Night. And then we're going to get into an, into an interview with Candace Knight, vocalist of the band.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce from the band Blackmore's Night. This is Candace Knight. How are you doing today, Candace? Hi, I'm good. Thanks, John. How are you? I'm doing great. We wanted to uh, get in touch with you. You guys have a, a awesome new album, Autumn Sky, uh, that's just come out in America, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, was number one on the uh, New Age charts uh, recently. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It debuted at number one, which I, I don't. I mean, it's interesting because I don't think they know where to put our music, so they kind of stuck us in new ways. But I mean, it's great. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah, any anytime you can get something uh, on on number one on a Billboard chart is a good thing. But it, it kind of made me chuckle because when you think of your music, I think of the Renaissance music. So it's you know hundreds of years old, and here we are, number one on the New Age charts. This is yeah. kind of a funny it's combination. It's a funny thing because we you know we do a little bit of everything. So I guess people either hear what they want to hear in our music or, you know, or if they're, they're you know, just really not into it and they don't hear what they don't want to hear. But, um, but I mean, really, there's, there's a little bit of every, there's, there's rock, there's kind of tavern music, there's instrumentals, there's ballads, there's, I mean, a little bit of everything. So, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, so the new age thing, it's fine because I guess they, they I see us actually in between Enya and like um, Yanni is always interesting for me. But um I always thought of new age music as kind of like massage music, you know, but yeah. I wouldn't have put us in that category, but, but it's fine, you know, it's, it's, wherever we can go, it's fine. Yeah, I have to admit, when I think the word new age, Enya is all I think, you know, it's, it's right. It's, I know, I know. And actually, it's a weird thing because she was, she was number one in that slot. And, uh, and then when our album came in, she, she got bumped to number two. I was shocked. Wow. <laughs> Which was, that was very interesting. Even if it only lasts for a week, it was interesting to see yeah. that happen. That, that's so, about yeah. as, as epic as when, uh, Quiet Riot knocked off Michael Jackson back in the 80s. That's, that's yeah, good. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, Candace, how did you get into this type of music? I, I know you came from a modeling background, but, but what drew you to this, this form of music? Well, I, I always loved music. I mean, I um, I was actually going to school at the time that I met Richie. Uh, I was going to college for um, for communications. I was interning at a radio station. So I knew I wanted to be around music. I just didn't know in what capacity. And I never in a million years would have thought it was as a singer. So um, when I met Richie, he actually was the one who introduced me to Renaissance music. He he listened to it in his house. All the, It's all he listens to still. Sometimes I put on, you know, like a... Like my 80s rock music because that's that's my era, you know, my, sure. my teenage years. So I, you know, kind of rock out to that. But uh, it's it's funny because he'll come in and kind of switch up the CDs when I'm not looking and put on a Renaissance song. So um, I guess a lot of people think it's the other way around. But it's a funny thing because I never actually heard Renaissance music before, which he introduced me to it. So, um, but I was working for uh, the the biggest radio station on Long Island here uh, in New York. Um, it's a rock station, BAB. And I was interning there for about a year and a half, and we had a charity um, soccer game between Deep Purple and and, uh, and our, our radio station. And of course, the guys from Purple beat us merciless because yeah. our DJs our DJs were not the most athletic of people, as you can imagine. No, <laughs> and you're going I mean, to Exactly. They're good at like pressing buttons and eating pizza, but that was pretty much yeah, <laughs> that exactly. was pretty much it. But um, but so when I met him, uh, I, I went up and I asked him for an autograph and. Uh, and um, I, that was like 21 years ago, I guess. So uh, he, I, I kind of like never left, I guess, at that point. He asked me to meet him at a, a bar afterwards, and, and we just wound up talking all night. And and it was an interesting because we were, you know, we were friends first, and wherever he was around the, the world, he would call me or send me postcards and talk on the phone for hours. And, mm-hmm. But again, I never thought it was going to be a musical thing. Sure. And uh, when we went on the road with Purple, he asked me to go along with him and uh, asked me to sing back up on his uh, Difficult to Cure solo, so I wound up doing that, and after that, he reformed Rainbow, and they were having a hard time coming up with some lyrics, so they asked me if, uh, you know, before they flew in a professional lyric writer and spent, yeah. you know, hordes of money on it, they, they asked me if uh, if I would be able to come up with some stuff, and I gave them, you know, what I thought was okay for the, you know, the backing tracks, and uh, and they loved it, and they kind of like circled the, the verbs they want to use and rearranged a couple of things, and and uh, that's how I wound up co-writing four songs on that album. So everything was like a really natural evolution, you know. Yeah, I mean, you you came out of the the shoot here. I mean, you and I are roughly the same age, and you know, Deep Deep Purple obviously was was pretty legendary before we were even old enough to know what music was. And, and throw it, throw in how legendary even Rainbow was, and, and to be, you know, thrust in as a, into that to that world at that age would had to be almost overwhelming. Yeah, it was a strange thing, especially because of that. When I first met him, I was, I was 18 years old, so um, you know, it's kind of like 
it was first it was like the intrigue, you know, this dark, mysterious persona, you know, and then uh, and then of course being just seeing them pick up a guitar and and play at that point, you know, the the electric was just oh my god, it kind of blew your mind, and it still does, you know, to this day because we're still oh, we're still wailing away on the stage, so it's, it's just amazing the stuff that comes up with. But the cool thing is that now, you know, sitting around the house, he's picking up the acoustic and he'll just play for hours and hours, and I'm I'm kind of like lucky enough to be, you know. Almost like, yeah. you know, I kind of would call it like the front row seat in my own house, like listening to him play, you know, <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is just an amazing thing because he's never more relaxed than obviously when he's in a home environment. And, and to hear him just open up and really emote, it's just it's amazing. So how, how do you guys write? Because I know a large majority of that, um, he has written the music, you've written the lyrics. Do you maybe write some poetry first and he, he puts music to it? Or do you sit down with his compositions or how do you do that? Uh, usually the way it works is that um, he'll come up with the music and, um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm always around, so whether I'm in the other room or whatever, so he'll come and get me and he'll play the song for me and uh, ask me to sing a melody line that he's come up with and um, and we'll see if the melody line works. And if mm-hmm. it clicks and, you know, and he feels that it really has a strong potential, then um, then I'll kind of just go away. I'll go in another room or I'll go outside on, on the deck or sit in the garden or something and, and just kind of really try to absorb that song, and I always find that, you know, even if you listen to his instrumentals, they, they're so visual. Like, you can close your eyes to any one of his instrumentals, and you get some kind of picture painted in your head, you know, or you, you go somewhere. They're so strong. So I just kind of feel like a lot of the times that the process is I, I sit there with the music he just came up with and kind of close my eyes and try to detach from everything, you know, all the stress around you and all the pressures around you, just kind of really absorb and breathe in that song. And try to figure out what paintings or pictures, you know, or pictures are painted in your head, and uh, and like then I take those, those pictures and those ideas and kind of make it into a storyline and and tra- almost translate those visuals, uh, so I guess other people will will see it and hopefully relate to it on on an emotional level as well. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go into the studio with the material, do you guys do this as is a band you perform this, or do you do multi tracking? I mean, because there's a lot of different instruments on this album. Yeah, a lot of it is multi-tracking. Every once in a while, we'll bring in some of the band members, and they'll, they'll put their parts on. And, of course, you know, when it comes to the Renaissance stuff, I mean, I'm I'm playing, like, I guess almost 10 medieval or Renaissance woodwind instruments at this point, which is playing. So anything you hear that's, like, medieval Renaissance woodwind mm-hmm. instruments, like, that's all me multi-tracked, you know, like, big ensemble, sure. just like me. Um, and then you've got Rich playing the, the nickel harp, hurdy-gurdy, the mandolas, mandolins, you know, besides, of course, all the, all the guitars. So... Um, so a lot of the band is just the two of us, you know, adding the dimensions Layers. of the different sounds. Exactly. And then we have um, a great producer who flies out, Pat Reagan, flies out from Los Angeles. And we have a studio in our house. And um, so he's down there kind of, I guess he fills out the rest of it on, uh, you know, like basically a lot of the synth sounds that he's got are, are you know, so amazing. Like the sounds are so, like, yeah, I think he gets uh, the movie sounds, you know, in his synthesizer, mm-hmm. keyboard. Um but a lot of the string sounds will fly in our, our violin player or um, the big our our, um, our keyboard player actually has like this big operatic type of voice, so he'll come in and do something mm-hmm. like that. So every once in a while, you know, we'll get some of the band members in, but mostly it's it's me and Richie and, and pretty much the producer. Now, how did you go to learn this kind of you know, these all these medieval instruments? I, I know I've seen in the videos you're playing the penny penny whistle and things like that. Did you? come from like a flute background or something or no it's really bizarre i don't know how that happened <laughs> i mean all i know is once like years ago Richie and i were in la and we went to uh we were in like a a new age shop and he picked up a penny whistle and, and it sat on the kitchen counter for like six months and it got to the point where i was like it's, look somebody's got to play this thing or i'm throwing it out it's collecting dust it's got to go and uh he picked it up and he's like well you know, I can't do it, so I guess you should throw it out. So I picked it up, and I'm like, all right, let me give it a shot. And I wound up uh, just, I don't know, innately knowing where where the notes were. I wound up coming up with, uh, like when he was playing Renaissance Fair, I, could, I knew where the notes were on that. It, it just seemed like so natural and, and simple for me. So for some, I was really lucky. So that, that was actually in the beginning, probably more than 10 years ago, I was able to work some of the penny whistles into some of our songs. And then... Richie just loves the way that um, the medieval woodwind instruments look and sound, the bombards, the shams, the rauschweiss, the crumhorns, all the things that, like, if you talk to somebody in the street, they've never heard of, and they look at you like you're insane. Yeah. So most of the time when people ask me, like, what I do, I don't even tell them that, you know, that I play in a band, because they'll say, what do you play? And I'm like, you're never going to ever have heard of these instruments. <laughs> what difference does it make, you know? But um, 
you know, he, he loves the way they look, like the, the wood and how it's fluted at the end. And like the one, it, It's just like they're so organic. Yeah. So um, as we were going around, we would, you know, go into some of these medieval stores in like Prague or um, I think we found a Cornemuse in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Like you, every mm-hmm. once in a while you'll find something bizarre that you're like, oh, i got to have that. Because you don't normally see it in, in, you know, like a music land or, or Sam Ash or something. So um, he started collecting them, and um, and they would wind up he'd keep them like on shelves in the wall. They looked like almost like art pieces. They were mm-hmm. beautiful. But after a while, I'm like, you know, it's so sad because these things are basically created to to play, and they're sitting on our shelves doing nothing. So um, now that I knew I had the the penny whistle thing, I was like, well, let me try some of the rest of them. And and uh, I'm sure I'm I'm playing them all wrong, and I'm sure the fingering is wrong, and I'm sure if you spoke to anybody in a medieval Renaissance band, they would like you know, turn their nose up and say, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. But the bottom line is I can get the notes out that I need, you know. And, that, and they're kind of like teaching, the, the instruments are actually teaching me because the fingering is all different depending on which ones you're playing. If there's a hole, the back hole, if you have to do forked fingering, um, the, you know, plastic reeds as opposed to cane reeds, like there's all these little intricacies on all these instruments. And, um, you know, they each have their own personality and each one of them takes different breath and uh, it, it, it's a lot but um but it's fascinating and it intrigues me and and uh, i mean it's such a passion for doing it and, and it actually adds different flavoring to the music which absolutely is cool. otherwise you know you have like the same typical five piece kind of band and and that's great you know you could do a lot of stuff with that but when you add all these different flavors or colors or you know to your palette it, it just makes it all that much more interesting yeah and and my my hat's off to you because i i was like you i saw a penny whistle in a store and I bought it, and it sounded like a dog whistle. Uh, to this day, you know, it was a cool-looking thing. It was really cheap. I thought, oh, I'll give this a try. You know, I've always liked Irish music, and I, it was a mistake. You know, I, no. I, I do the world a favor and leave it on on the shelf for me. So, you know, it looks simple. You know, there's, what, ten holes or something like that in a penny yes. whistle. Well, some people, t- like, some people, it's real natural, too. But I'll tell you, can you play guitar? Um, not in the company that you're used to, but yeah, a little. No, but, no, but I mean, like, you know, like I have, I mean, Richie's got, I mean, the guitars take precedence in this house. I walk into a room and they're on every chair, every couch. I have to sit on the floor. So there's yeah. like, he's got so much stuff going on here. But I'll tell you what, like, even going out to, like, a lot of our friends play it at Open Mind Acoustic Nights and stuff. The, the guitar is like the most baffling instrument to me. Like, I cannot figure out, it's, it all looks like a graph kind of thing, where mm-hmm. the fingers go and the strumming. I'm totally lost. So, you know, everybody's got their own their own thing. So if you can play guitar but not penny whistle, then, you know, cheers to you. That's, that's yeah. good for you because I can't get the guitar thing at all whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you get a pat. I feel like everyone else can except me. Oh, I'm hey. the only one who doesn't get it, you know. Yeah, well, I guess you get you get a pass when it comes to guitar, though. Certainly, so, um, the new album. Um, I, I did want to ask you one thing as a, as a parent myself: How has having a little one in the house kind of changed things? I mean, has it made it a little more challenging to to spend time writing music? Um, it it does in a way. Actually, I tell you, I think the most challenging thing at this point was was doing like a, a nine piece renaissance woodwind ensemble when i was nine months pregnant because yeah. these guys have no mercy you know like i i walked in the house and all my instruments were gone from the shelves and i'm like oh no that's not a good thing and i went down to the studio and they're like oh we need uh you know this this ensemble at the beginning of journeyman and some of these instruments are like as long as my leg i mean i'm not <laughs> i'm not a real tall girl so i'm like oh my god like i was running out of breath and walking down the stairs like like are you kidding yeah so it was so funny that they're like, okay, well, we need, you know, the bombard part needs to be done four times so we can multi-track it, and then this part needs to be, you know, an alternate harmony, and I'm like, oh, my God, you're trying to kill me, like, for sure. <laughs> but so that was actually one of my proudest moments, being able to complete that ensemble when, you know, at that stage in, in the pregnancy. But um, but we're really lucky because this, this little amazing angel that we have is so into music, mm-hmm. so uh, she like literally she she's eight months now, and Richie's been giving her guitar lessons since she was two months old. <laughs> he'll hold the guitar over her and he'll do the chords and you know in his left hand, and she strums. I'm telling you like finger picking strums and like up Dang. and down strums. She's not just banging like a normal like it's ridiculous. And as soon as she sees the guitar. She's hand, both hands are reaching out for it. He can't walk past the room with the guitar without her, her like, you know, reaching for him and wanting to, yeah. to do her guitar lessons. So, um, so she's really excited about even being around me. So we actually get to do a lot of the writing and the creating and stuff, and she'll just sit there and watch us, like, wide-eyed and 
She actually, like, moves her hands when we're playing. She'll put her toys down and move her hands. Like, it's either mm-hmm. conducting or air guitar. I don't know what's going on, but she has this amazing connection to music. So, yeah. so we're pretty lucky. Like yeah, that. And the worst comes to worst, I'll just put her upstairs until she naps, and then we'll play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Enjoy it while she still naps. That's when it gets tricky. Yeah, exactly. Well, when she doesn't, I will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let him yeah. watch it for a little while. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's all good. It's all good. that's one thing I enjoyed very much about the new album is you can kind of hear that that joy in your life come through in the lyrics, oh, thank which is you. wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, and then I always notice even live. I mean, you're always smiling when you're singing. You can tell you're genuinely having a good time, which is wonderful. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's like this dream come true. You get to stand out there and. You know what's amazing too? It's like the whole fantasy of it. You know, like you mm-hmm. you have these dreams that that you know. If anybody ever said, "Oh, what you know, what's your dream that you want to come true?" You never expect that that thing is going to come true. You know, yeah. and, and it actually does. And, and I'll tell you, some of the things I've seen. If you see it once in your lifetime, it's it's something you remember for the rest of your life. And I'm so lucky that I could say I stepped out on the stage of a 12th century castle with a full moon rising overhead and all of these people like dressed in, in Renaissance garb and singing along and, and it's just like a really positive connection. Like I feel like, you know, like we're out there with a bunch of friends and everybody walks out with a smile on their face and you don't get that a lot these days. There's a lot of, a lot of aggression out there and, uh, you know, a lot of stress, but, but you don't see a lot of that positivity. So to hold on to those moments, it's, it's like this incredible energy. Yeah. Do you, uh, I know you guys are doing some dates in Europe uh, later this summer, Germany specifically, but do you see maybe going to doing some U.S. dates at all? Absolutely. We were just working on it last night. We're working on the rooting. So um, we're looking at the end of April. I know it's coming up fast. Um, end of April into mid-May. We we're thinking of the, uh, actually doing the, the northeast of the U.S. So and the U.S. is such a huge market, so you got to chip away a little bit at a time. Sure. But, um, you know, and, and nobody's crazy about flying these days. No. So, um, so if we can drive to everything, we'll be, we'll be more than happy. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so we're gonna, we're definitely gonna do that, and it'll be mid to, mid-April, I think, to, uh, to mid-May will be the month that we block off for, for the northeast of the U.S. Excellent. Well, Candace, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to do this interview. No problem. Thank you.
right again from the album Autumn Sky. That was a song called Dance of the Darkness. And before the interview, we played Highland. Uh, that album is available on Amazon. You could probably find that at a store like Best Buy, uh, maybe a Walmart. But uh, if not, go online, uh, blackmoorsnight.com for more information. Again, if uh, they do bring their tour to the Pittsburgh market or anywhere in the kind of western PA area, uh, keep it tuned here and we'll let you know. Now we're going to get into an interview that Eric did with uh, a name that may not ring a bell to many of you. His name is Graham Parker. Uh, as a musician that's been around for for many many years so we're going to go straight into that interview and let eric uh kind of fill you in all the all the details about graham today on the iron city rocks podcast we're talking to graham parker how you doing today graham very well thanks good to speak to you yes thank you for coming on we appreciate it thank you so um i wanted to talk a little bit about your your career with uh with your band the rumor and uh and uh just uh kind of recap what you've what you've done and uh and then uh, get into what you're doing today so um what got you started into music graham what got me started was probably the same thing that started everybody else uh from my uh, age group uh uh when i was around 12 or 13 something called the beatles appeared <laughs> and swiftly followed by the rolling stones very simple <laughs> Um, and or you know lots of other beat groups. I think that was that's what made everyone I knew pick up guitars and grow our hair. Before that, my you know it was kind of there was a sort of the Elvis Presley period, which didn't really impress me. And I was a bit younger, and um, you know so that didn't really grab me. But we had our own music when the Beatles and the Stones came along. Of course, I was about thirteen then, and those guys were probably you know, 1920 or 21 or something. So they were a bit older, but it didn't seem that far out of reach to us. You know, suddenly music wasn't coming from some mysterious Tin Pan Alley source, some, somewhere we didn't really understand. It came from a bunch of scruffy-looking guys, you know. And um, I think that was pretty much it. So um, I, I got started then, but it, it, I didn't. my career didn't begin until I was about 25. Um, so I, I basically, you know, just did a lot of jobs and various things and traveled around as a hippie um, before I actually decided to get serious. Yeah, you had kind um, of a yeah. diverse. You had a kind of a diverse uh, list of jobs that you performed, right? In addition to being a musician. Well, yeah, yeah. The first job I had was working in a place called the Animal Virus Research Institute uh, in Purbright, Surrey, very near where I grew up, um, and that was breeding animals for research. I know very <laughs> politically incorrect these days. <laughs> And uh, very funny, that place made the news uh, not too many years ago because it was primarily meant to be uh, trying to find a cure for foot and mouth and had been, has been a hopeless failure at it for, you know, what seems like centuries. And at some point, about, uh, only about five or six years ago, uh, foot and mouth disease was leaking out of the, the drainage system there and infected the whole of Surrey again. <laughs> you know? Oh, no way. <laughs> Yeah, um, so it's and and a description of it I read in the paper was incredible. It was exactly like I, I the, the same conditions, a scruffy place, uh, just like when I first worked there. That was my first job. Then I left home and went to the Channel Islands between England and France, where I uh, a place called Guernsey, um, and I picked tomatoes and um, I dug ditches and I worked collecting money from pinball machines and. Um, all kinds of stuff like that, and then then I worked in a in a uh, as a dough mixer in a bread factory in a bread you know making bread, and then then I went back to England, worked in a rubber glove factory and another factory making some kind of machinery parts. Then I went to Morocco and basically bummed around and went to Gibraltar and got a job on the docks. And there are many other jobs, some, some you know that will be here all day. But um, I did a lot of stuff like that, and uh, you know was carrying a guitar with me. Um, while I was hitchhiking and stuff uh, through France and Spain and Morocco when I was about n uh, 19 or 20, I think it was, um, and eventually got back to my parents and worked in a gas station, and then I started writing and started to find my own style. So that's, that's how my career began and found myself rehearsing with these guys who became the rumor in 1975. So that's, that's pretty much a very potted history of things there. Mm-hmm. Now, people have at times described you as a, as a, especially in your earlier career, as the quintessential angry young man. Do you agree with that? Well, that's uh, because they were, I was in a field of one in '76 and, until Johnny Rotten came along, you know, and 
and sort of became much more angry. And he looked a little more angry than, than I did, I think, in 1977. So they had nobody else to pin it on, you know? So uh-huh. they pinned it on me, which was, which was fine. It served my purpose at the time, but... Um, you know, a cursory listen to even my first album will show love ballads and, uh, you know, things with folk and American influence and soul influence. So, um, you know, I think it's just uh, inevitable that the press will find one small, one one phrase that, that, that suits their purposes, you know. But it, it, didn't, um, it didn't really offend me because I had pretty intense songs on that first album. Um, that did have some, you know, more passion than anger. I think so. Um, you know, it was. It's kind of fair enough, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot. Some of the uh, in your early career, you uh, you performed a lot, like on like the. I guess you'd call it the pub circuit in in the UK, correct? Well, the the guys who became my my first band, the Rumor, were in bands that were kind of again another coin of phrase. They became known as pub rock bands, which is basically bands who can't make it, you know, who can't get popular enough to not play the pubs. Um, as I say over and over again to anyone who listen, the Sex Pistols played the pubs. Sure. The Rolling Stones played the pubs. That's where you play in England before you make it, you know. And so I did about uh, two gigs in pubs with with my band, The Rumor, who, yes, they worked in, they'd played lots in London pubs. I, I lived in the suburbs of England, so I didn't know anything about anything called pub rock. Rock, It was a mystery to me. Um, and I went straight from there to being on tour in concert halls and universities, opening for the hit band Ace, who also got their start in pubs like everybody else. And then I was playing theaters, so it's, a, it's another misnomer, really. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think it's anything that's really done me any good because who knows what pub rock is? Nobody, you know. Right. It's just another uh, blanket term applied to uh, things that doesn't necessarily apply. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it's it was, uh, you know, the bands that played in those pubs were, uh, you know, very, there was a lot of roots rock, what you'd call Americana now is, is the way I would describe it. Now I think back on it and it's sort of, sort of cleared my head on all these, this terminology. They played soul music. They played uh, country. They played something that, you know, Los Lobos or Weezer might, have, might play, you know, or, or I, I don't know, those kind of bands that are more sort of down to earth as opposed to techno, you know. So it was that kind of mixed music. Um, and they were thoroughly out of fashion because in the 70s, it was either progressive music that ruled or sort of novelty hits in England. Mm-hmm. So they, they never really made it, you know. And um, I, I came along in 76 and instantly got a record deal and was in the papers and on top of the pops and had actual minor hit records. So, um, you know, it was, it was quite a different thing from the, the bands like Brinsley Schwartz and Ducks Deluxe and who were playing for years in pubs because they couldn't really get out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you, um, your first two albums, Howl and Wind and Heat Treatment, uh, they came out pretty close to one another. And then your your third album, you had to re-record it, right? Yeah, we did. There was something wrong with the tapes. Uh, Oxide was coming off uh, that we looked at while the, while the recording was going on, and nobody paid any attention to it. And then we tried, so we'd spent a month on it, tried to mix it, and we couldn't mix it. It was one of those things where one instrument would kind of bleed through to the other when you push the faders up. So it had to be scrapped, and we did it with uh, Nick Lowe, who was in the alleged pub rock band Brinsley Schwartz. And he, he actually produced my first album, uh, Howling Wind. And um, so we, we did the next version of Stick to Me in, in like a week. We, mm-hmm. you know, we, we got, but, 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 you know, it got out there. It had a very grungy sound, which people would kill for today, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure. But, but at the time, especially in America, it was kind of sort of seen as a step backwards for me because I think um, I had a lot of press favoritism in America from my first two albums. And they heard the third one and thought, well, you know, Graham's not going to make it playing, you know, with a sound like this. And, you know, you have to realize the press invest a lot when they when they pick an artist, you know. Um, so it was a bit of a disappointment to some, but a lot of fans like it. And, um, you know, I think it added its own sort of thing to it. You know, it just wasn't what it was meant to be. It it really wasn't what the first album was sounding like, which was a, bit, a much bigger, more grandiose kind of sound. But uh, 
anyway, those tapes were discarded, thrown away. No one can... Uh, I wish we could find them now because you could dump it all into something digital and remix it, perhaps, you know. Right. But those, those original tapes, according to my first manager, are gone. They were destroyed. Nobody thought about history in those days, you know. Sure, sure. Now, you had had a lot of uh, difficulties with various record labels over the years, right? Well, um, no, it's that's another mythology, really. What happened with me is um, something that doesn't really happen to many people these days, is that I got many major record label deals with increasingly large portions of money thrown at me, which was is a very, very good thing. Sure. Um, um, they They may have been incompetent, that's true. Mercury Records, for instance... Um, there was no uh, when I started in '76. There was nothing called new wave, nothing called punk, so they had no category to put me in, and so therefore they didn't promote me. Um, so uh, those kind of uh, things dogged me a bit. And Arista Records, um, I signed with them, who again were very generous with their money. We, you know, we were doing tours with two buses and you know thousands of tour support of, and uh, large advances for records which made my life uh, quite a lot of fun actually it was it was very good so i can't complain that much but um also you know they were a bit of a mistake because their main act was Barry Manilow you know <laughs> so <laughs> it didn't it didn't really tie together um i think my manager definitely made a mistake signing me with Arista and it was the dollar signs that was were speaking loudly to him when the fact was Warner Brothers were after me and we ignored them which was a very stupid thing to do ah. you know um so <laughs> anyway these things happen but um I never had any artistic compromises with record labels because that was one smart thing my manager did in the very first place. It was in the record deals. Give us the money, we make the record, and we hand it in. So there was that, that would be the worst thing for me to have those kind of um, artistic compromises. And that never occurred and, and still never has to this day, apart from once with Atlantic Records. They tried to get involved because my second manager thought that was a good idea. Turned out that it wasn't. So I walked away from Atlantic Records with money for nothing. And uh, that, was, that was also very good. <laughs> and then I, then I went to RCA who said, okay, we'll sign you um, to impress us, do a record. And that was excellent. Everything was great from then on, you know. Um, so, so it's, it's been good and, you know, perhaps bad in some ways, you know, as far as the promotional aspects of things, I think. Sure. Now you have a, ver a very long disc discography and, uh, so, um, uh, of all your albums, what's your, what's your favorite one that you did and like, you know, what's the one you had like the most fun doing like, and, you know, as, as far as all, you know, all the different ones you've done? Um, they, you know, they, they all have the ups and downs and that, that kind of stress factor of whether this is actually going to turn out into something good or not. There's, there's always an unknowable quality about it. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's so many points that are, uh, that were, were exciting and thrilling to me. There's nothing better than the first album. You know, for one thing, there I am from being a gas station attendant, which I was still doing in the mornings and driving up to London with a, a record deal with with a major label and making an album with great musicians, you know, and sure. just th that discovery is something that's irreplaceable, you know. Um, uh, otherwise, there's been very interesting records. One of my favorites is 12 Haunted Episodes, which came out in the 90s, whereby I went to a studio and recorded everything uh, as demos on acoustic guitar and thought it was so good and so much energy and so natural that I would add the musicians to it, which was a very interesting experiment that I think worked in its own way. And and that was a that was an exciting thing because um, uh, all recording, so much of recording in the old days, especially in the 70s, was where you would do the album, do a rough vocal, and then a month or two later go back and do the real vocal. And you'd put the headphones on and it would sound slow and weird and you'd have to sing and it was a totally artificial environment. Um, another standout record for me that was exciting was Mona Lisa's Sister, which came out in 88, where, where I said, I'm going to be the producer, I'm going to record this acoustic guitar, vocal, and just drums, for the most part. And then I'm going to, we're going to overdub the instruments on top of that. So um, uh, that, again, you know, taught me that real natural first-time vocals while I'm playing is a good thing. 
Um, so there's, there's been many, you know, discoveries like that along the way that have been exciting. Sure. Are all of your albums still in print? Uh, you know, I don't even follow it. I've no idea. Um, I think some of them may may not be. There may be some um, from the 90s uh, that may not be in print. There, I know I had someone razor and tie, like including one of my best, I think, which is Deep Cuts of Nowhere, which were out of print. And so I asked them if they'd manufacture some, and I would buy them. And so I, I, every now and again, I'd buy 500 of them and, and put some out on my website and sell some on the road just so that people could discover them. So there, mm-hmm. there are definitely a few have, have slipped through the net over the years, I think. Sure. You have most of your recordings on like iTunes and everything, though, I guess? I don't think everything is. I think there's a few gaps there from record companies that own some of my albums and have not bothered. So there may be some gaps, but uh, certainly there's plenty on iTunes. And, of of course, all the modern stuff. I've been with uh, Bloodshot Records for about four albums now, and certainly all the modern stuff comes out on iTunes. Sure, sure. That's good. Now, you uh, have an album that came out last year. Uh, If you'd like to talk about that a little bit back back in March, I believe, right? In March, yeah, I released um, an album called Imaginary Television, and um, uh, you know, which again has a, a an, to me a, a kind of stimulating idea behind it, in which I wrote um, lots of imaginary TV show plots, and then wrote songs based on them, um, which was uh, quite an interesting way of writing. I would basically come up with a rough idea for a sitcom. Uh, you know, just a sentence, and boom, I would write a song. It made songwriting very easy for one album. Um, and then I, I wrote the, the plots out in more detail and put them on the album cover instead of lyrics. So um, that was <laughs> quite an interesting experiment, which produced a lot of uh, a great variety of interesting songs, I think. Um, you yeah, never heard anybody and- do anything like that before. No, I know. And um, of course, now I'm writing songs again because it's been, uh, you know, all that time since that record came out in March 2010. I'm in the midst of writing and it's it's really hard <laughs> because I, I haven't got any TV shows to write them about. And, um, you know, I, I'm not into repeating myself. So I, it's, it's, you know, it's I, I sat there for a bit thinking, should I try and come up with TV shows? And I thought, no, done, been there, done it, you know. Sure. So I'm, I'm back to just honest-to-goodness songwriting again. But it was a fun experiment and made a very good record, I think, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was happy with it. Yeah. Now, now, most recently, in December of 2010, you came out with uh, Graham Parker and the Figs live at the FTC. Uh, that's a, uh, is that a single or double live DVD? It's a single. It's a, uh, a DVD with an, a live album in it. Uh, so it's got two discs. One one is the show on, on uh, DVD, and the other is the 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 CD uh, that you can put in your car and play it there if you want. Um, also, it has an hour interview uh, with me um, on the DVD. So, um, And that was done in, in April, I think. We were touring to support Imaginary Television, me and uh, the band, The Figs, who, I've, who are a band in their own right who makes excellent records, and um, I've worked with them a number of times. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they stand alone as a band, and then they also back you, correct? Yeah, they backed me a few times, and we made an album called Songs of No Consequence. They actually recorded with me. Usually, I sometimes I use um, um, uh, Mike Gent, uh, who is their that's a guitarist and singer and writer as well, one of the writers, and he plays excellent drums as well. He played drums on on imaginary television. So I've used uh, you know some of them in various different roles. I used the bass player, for instance, on Deep Cuts of Nowhere. Um, so I've, I've worked with them in, in different formations. Um, and I go out with sometimes, you know, Graham Parker and the Figs and they add a keyboard player. And that's basically what we've got on this DVD. It's the Figs who are a three piece with, um, Scott Janowitz, who is a great keyboard player from Boston. Okay. And sometimes they work with, uh, Tommy Stinson, formerly the replacements too, right? Yeah, they have done. Yeah. They've worked with a few people. Um, the bass player, uh, Pete Donnelly, is, has been working with Soul Asylum recently as well. Oh, so interesting. They, they, yeah, they get out there, and Mike Gent has his band, Mike Gent and the Gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's nice there's a, you know, a variety of, of stuff that they do. That's right. Tommy Stinson's another one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's that's interesting. Now, as far as like uh, future plans, do, do you have a tour in the works or like a new album or anything like that coming up soon? 
I, I'm writing at the moment, so I don't know where I'm going with it. I never know until I've got them all together and make some rough demos and look at it and see what I'm doing. So there's no concrete plan, but I'm definitely in the midst of writing songs and basically have just got some solo gigs booked, um, mostly around the Northeast area, and also some gigs with Mike Gent, who plays um, guitar with me as a duo, the Graham Parker duo, as we call it. And we're doing a few gigs like the City Winery and also the FTC, where, where this DVD was recorded. We're doing those things in uh, late March and April. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just doing, you know, the, the, the sort of bread and butter, you know, live solo work. Also doing a gig with uh, Garland Jeffries as a double bill, January 26th in Chatham, New Jersey, I believe it is. Uh, uh, f- no, sorry, February. 26th. February 26th, yeah, I see that. That's, that's coming up this month. So there's, um, and my agent's just looking into stuff for the, for the fall and maybe a few in the summer. So um, just, you know, just fishing around, no, no actual tours, uh, which is, you know, generally something I do when I have an album out to promote and try and get, you know, go on the road with the figs or whatever, maybe solo or duo to, to actually promote an album, get a string of gigs together. Otherwise, it's just, you know, picking up weekenders here and there to keep my hand in, you know. Sure. Yeah, I see that you're going to be solo in uh, Bethlehem, PA, which is the closest you'll be to Pittsburgh. That's in eastern PA. So oh, yeah. um, hopefully yeah, you'll be I, able to I swing through our town that. sometime. Yeah, I haven't played Beth- Bethlehem. I, I, I've got to uh, look into that one. looks like a, a venue I haven't played. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, if people want to check more out about you, um, it looks like your official website is uh, grahamparker.net, correct? That's right. Okay, yeah, yeah. So um, if you want to learn more about Graham, go out there and, and check it out. Well, Graham, we want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been interesting, and uh, hopefully you can swing through town and we can see you around here too. All right, Eric, thanks for your time, man. Thank you. Okay. All right, that was Eric's interview with the great Graham Parker. So we want to thank Eric for taking the time to do the interview, and also Graham, and uh, want to again thank Candace Knight from Blackmore's Night and all the folks involved with making that interview a possibility. Again, uh, blackmoresnight.com and grahamparker.net to get all the info on those guys. You can find more information about us out at ironcityrocks.com. You'll find links to our MySpace, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, etc., uh, one of the region's most complete concert calendars, uh, kind of pulling information from multiple sources all into one page. Uh, we've got a video podcast on our homepage with some great local bands there. Uh, links to all the other podcasts we've done. As I mentioned, this was episode 95. So for those of you new to the show, there are 94 editions prior to this to fill your time. Uh, and we invite you to try to listen to as many of those as possible. Um, and also, if you would like to drop us a line, it's ironcityrocks at gmail.com. We would deeply appreciate any feedback you'd like to give us on face, uh, Facebook or uh, iTunes. Uh, if you go to the iTunes store and search for Iron City Rocks, leave a comment, leave a rating. That would be greatly appreciated. Again, we would like to thank you for your time, and we hope to talk to you next time.